Why are we doing this? This is the Evil Twins. How are you doing? What's up, motherfuckers? I think you're nervous because we're going to use fake names. We're in a pioneer graveyard, and those people were fucking tough. We're pussies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a little surprise for you. (laughs) Oh, no. Not another one of these. Another surprise, (laughs) my friend. And we're sitting here smoking some pot. (laughs) I gave my life to Jesus. He said, here, no thank you. You can have it back. We, we uh, consumed some psilocybin mushrooms today. Uh, we're going to be going down to the UFO convention down in McMinnville, Oregon. He's got to be nervous, don't you think, coming, coming on to our podcast? Let's treat him with the respect he deserves. I'm excited to talk to him. Let's get him on the line. Welcome, Welcome to the Evil Twin podcast. podcast. What's up? Not much, man. We're about to have an amazing conversation with a very unique, I would almost say the most important person we've, we've ever... Uh, and yeah, on this not podcast. only the most important, but definitely the most unique. I say important because the the level of his work. I mean, it's he's he's designing things and inventing things, and he's he's conceiving of things that humans might be using, you know, hundreds yeah. of years from now to get around the solar system. Yeah, you know, so his ideas are going to be affecting humanity for a long time if they're ever taken seriously and and put into use. Yeah, and this guy, I mean. He's kind of a, a bit of a renaissance man. I mean, he's been a part of the psychedelic community for a long time. Mm-hmm. He's um, He has this thing called D- Digibarn, which is pretty much the, the most incredible collection of old computer uh, hardware and right. I think software as well of, of anybody. Mm-hmm. He's and, involved in Burning Man. Yeah. I mean, the guy's been, I mean, just why don't you just go and read his uh, intro? All right. Dr. Bruce Damer is a Canadian-American multidisciplinary scientist, designer, and speaker. He works in evolutionary biology, researching the question of the origin of life and the exploration and economic development of space. He also has a practice in the design of innovative software systems interfaces and a passion for collecting and curating historical archives in computing history and leading figures of the counterculture. Uh, I could go on and on. He's involved in stuff that has to do with science, right. sciencey stuff, sciencey stuff, space stuff, spacey stuff. Um, you know, he's he was he, also really good friends with Terrence McKenna, which in my book yeah. makes him a pretty pretty much of a badass and if you don't know who terrence mckenna is and you're a regular listener of our podcast then you need to do some research because we've already talked to his brother <laughs> dennis mckenna um i don't remember what episode that was um yeah he's he wrote a book back in the 90s about virtual worlds mm-hmm. you know um this guy is he's he's uh he's a visionary yeah and he's also a genius right and he's also highly creative and it's hard to get all three of those into one person so without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Bruce Damer. So you guys are identical twins, right? Yes. Wow. And, and I guess. Which, so you can't tell which one is the evil one. I can't tell, but I don't know if he can. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things, you know, you never think it's you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
until, until you do a pretty heavy uh, dose of uh, 5-MeO-DMT, then you kind of see the whole thing yeah. pretty clearly. There's really no evil twin at that point. <laughs> evil twin, there's, there's nothing except everything. <laughs> right, exactly. right. Well, we uh, could start in a million different places, I think, with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, where do we start? Do we start, talk about space first? Or? Yeah, do we talk about... Wait. <laughs> virtual worlds uh, you know yeah. we could talk about terence mckenna we could talk about a million different things liminality um uh, endo I, beans <laughs> beans yeah endo beans probably my my uh i do not have a, a specialty in drugs because i figure i'd leave that to others yeah so when, I, when was the last time you uh partook well you know years ago i've been you know i went to peru um uh, and so had some pretty amazing experiences down there. But, you know, I haven't been there in a while, and I'm actually probably not going back for the foreseeable future. So I'm <laughs> I'm sort of off on a new tangent, which is, is in a sense, I, I feel like I've, I've learned and, and obtained what I need to obtain from that. So I'm, I'm off on this science tangent. Nice. It's a good. It's a good tangent to be on. Um, but what about this um, endo way? I, I heard this mentioned um, on the Rogan podcast, and I, I heard you talk about some of the experiences that it's sort of been generated by using this technique. Would you talk a little bit about that and tell us like how this works and how you do it? Is it just meditation based, or and what is it? What is it? Well, um, I came up with this term because. Uh, I read about somewhere that the term endogenous, which means sort of made from within. Mm -hmm. And, you know, truthfully, everyone does it. There's no limitation. There's no restriction. Um, if you're, you know, reading a really good adventure book and you're in the story, you're doing endogenous dreaming, you know, world creation. You know, you're just not really conscious that you're doing it, but I, I think that in some ways, some chemical activation is going on uh, that creates incredible vividness in the vision center. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, any kind of uh, sort of Im immersive, whether it be a lucid dream or be some kind of a reverie that you, you can get into, it's endogenous. And, and when you're 10 years old, you... Uh, you know, when you're playing airplane all day and flying over, you know, imagined landscapes mm -hmm. as you walk along and then and have a really stimulating day. And when you close your eyes, you know, either your, your big brother is beating on you or you're seeing flashes behind your eyes. You're seeing colors and you're seeing almost landscapes. You know, that that certainly happened to me mm -hmm. a lot. And and. I just loved it. it. For me, it was like a secret world. And so in some ways, I don't know how, whether it was an intention, that never went away. So when I was a teenager, you know, you're like super bored in junior high school, right? I mean, that's the, the definition of boredom in some cases. Uh, so I just went into dreamland. And I found, uh, well, for years I drew tremendous numbers of color imagery of spacecraft and planetary landscapes and all those things for years and filled enormous notebooks and uh, 
you know, full full of that stuff and designed whole worlds. I mean, there was stuff going on in my head, this vast landscapes of of empires and activities, and I designed board games. So I, I had this internal world just kept getting bigger and bigger and more and more complex. So it, it became my training, and then this is how I've applied this. I have this brain now that does all these complex worlds uh, <laughs> all the time, whether it be spacecraft design, like solar system architectures. Uh, you know, for 12 years, I modeled and simulated almost every space mission imaginable. And my head was on the surface of all these planets and moons and visualizing rovers and you know, space stations and all that, because it had, I could contain all that. And then out popped the Shepard design about two years ago, uh, out of all of that huge systemic thinking. And then the other flip side of it is the origin of life work. And that's was similarly, you know, centered in this, in these worlds, in this, this world making, uh, this sort of, you know, that came out of this endogenous, you know, I don't know what chemicals are involved or what, nerve centers are involved but it, it surely works well you know it, it's funny uh, i also recently discovered there was a term for this and there was an actual movement the liminalism movement oh okay in the 19th century and i, I kind of determined that i was a liminalist hmm. and it's not a minimalist <laughs> but it's a it's a uh, what it, it it says is taking a position on the line so liminal being almost like a line on the line or the ridge between two great magisteria, two great spaces. And the great spaces are magic and methodical, rational thinking. Mm. You know, those are the two great magisteria that have given us our world. And so the liminalist, at least by my definition, dances on that ridge, the liminal ridge between them, and occasionally their foot or arm swings out or their mind or their body pirouettes out into the heavy-duty magic uh, without losing uh, contact with the ridge. But then you fly back and you go through the heavy-duty Cartesian rationalist reductionist world, and they're both incredibly powerful techniques. You know, so you're kind of playing back and forth, you know, to be able to be this imaginative sort of woo-woo type of cat mixed with, you know, a it's scientist. Like, <laughs> it's like you have a T-shirt. On one side, there's a big circle of a line through it with saying no woo. But on the back, it says, you know, woo's in the circle. <laughs> okay. But you're, you're still grounding it somehow. And, and because rationalism can go off the rails you know we know that mm -hmm. um, magic is by definition trying to pull you into an infinitude of of options and it's it challenges you to put intention and to put itself up to a litmus test in fact i think the magic spaces really enjoy getting given a server assignment they get a a requestor and then they start working. Otherwise, it's just flow. And whereas in, you know, the reductionist world, it can, you know, completely, it can either hammer you into a pulp of, of, of specificity and detail, you know, 
science papers are really good good examples of that. Mm-hmm. Or it or there's incredible beauty in it because it's, it can cut out the dross. It can cut out things that don't matter and allow you to find truth. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's an incredible thing. So then what happens is as you're going through this incredible process of trying to find truth, you punch through into the magic. And the magic basically hauls you up through the light and shows you a truth that there's no way that you could ever get to. And it gives you kind of a glimmer sometimes, and sometimes it grabs grabs your shirt collar and says, look, look at what I will show you. And and you have to, and often the magic is actually taking the the reductionist, you know, little hiker up his mountainside. He's gotten so far and he's kind of exhausted. He doesn't know how to find the next uh, rock to, for a handhold. He doesn't know how to get higher. And the magic actually whispers, you know, in the wind and says, you know, says, slide along that rock and you'll go to a whole new place. There's in fact, there's a tunnel that will take you into the, you know, the crystal kingdom in the mountain. And then you'll come out because you have to sort of give up, give up for a moment and be slid sideways you know, this is what mm-hmm. Einstein happened with Einstein and Newton and all those guys just sort of opened themselves to allow something to show them a metaphor. Like with Einstein's case, it was sort of running alongside a beam of light, you know. Yeah. And that was his Gedanken experiment, you know. It's It kind of reminds me, um, I had this really kind of intense psychedelic experience with mushrooms at one point. And when I came back from it, I just remembered like being so grateful for um, just being alive and feeling like this sort of sober state (laughs) felt so good, you know? And, and so you kind of be, you're able to feel both, you know, able to feel um, the wonderment of these sort of, psychedelic or in endo states that like you're talking about and then you come back to reality and you and it's nice to touch in that too it's good to have both it seems well i i can tell you guys today i was i was envisioning a new book that i'm starting to work on i wrote the outline for it and it took me way out because Mm -hmm. the book is going to be the story of the, this new model for the origin of life, but it's going to be the story of all the thinkers from Freeman, you know, from Darwin through Freeman Dyson and Stuart Kaufman and Dave Deemer, and it's going to talk about all of their craftsmanship and all of their insights, and then I'm going to synthesize it because it's the basis on this new theory, and my head was just way out there, and then I realized it's time to go <laughs> into the barn and sort out and dust off, you know, a quarter million computer artifacts in this massive project to reorganize the Digibarn computer collection. It was a relief to put on my baseball cap and my dirtiest, dirtiest pants and go down there and just haul stuff around. It's like, thank God. That I'm, you know. Isn't it weird to, to kind of know, though, that it's like great on both sides? <laughs> Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so when you come back from these sort of visionary states, um, are there some things that you sort of that's when you're sort of processing everything? Are there some things that don't quite fit? Is there picking and choosing that goes on in terms of what you're sort of getting out of it, or is it just everything sort of makes sense? 
these days, because I've been at this so long, everything's sort of swirling around, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I'm just sort of being carried. It's like being in a vortex at the moment. Mm-hmm. Just things are just coming and coming and coming. Back years ago, it was really, you know, a light, a pen light in the dark. You know, it was really little bits here and there and a lot of hard work to to get just a few things. And nowadays it's like an order of magnitude multiplied and stuff is just happening. You know, ne- next week, for example, I'm going to a NASA think tank on sending missions to the moon Encel- Enceladus, wow. mm-hmm. which is uh, the sixth moon of Saturn. And it has a, it's a cool place. It, it has a, a crust, you know, it's, it's an ice crust. I forget how, maybe a kilometer thick. And there's an ocean under it, the liquid ocean, and it's spraying stuff out into space. So there are these blue cracks everywhere where the, you know, kind of there, Enceladus's version of plate tectonics is ice tectonics. And stuff is being pushed around by convection currents of water, not, not magma. And these these sprays that are coming out are like its version of volcanoes, and the question they have is how do we design a mission to to determine if there's a life biosignature, if there could be life in Enceladus's oceans. Mm-hmm. So that's that just came up, and and Dave said, why don't you go to it? And so suddenly I'm being hurled into a meeting of like 30 scientists, and I'm going to just absorb. Um, all that and present our model in that context. So it, I, I'm now just used to the fact that things are just coming and they're coming and they're coming. I think that's one of the most incredible things is that you have these, you have the ability to go into these Indo trips <laughs> and uh, actually bring back information that's a tangible, useful, real, real, you know, you know what I mean when I say real real thing and and that can be used in this kind of material reality. And I think that's kind of the fascinating thing. Tell us a little bit more about um, some of the stuff that you feel like you've been able to get and bring back and, and like some of these, the spacecraft that you've designed. It it all started when I was about 14 or 15 years old. I, I kind of made a, it all comes from intention. So when I was 14, I decided I was going to work on the origin of life. That how did molecules self-assemble into a system? It would, it struck me as you know for you guys for the, it was the trippiest nerdiest <laughs> problem. How when I was fourteen, I was jacking off and thinking about my girlfriend. But go ahead. <laughs> and I was you know I was wandering the countryside of Canada and uh, and uh, doing other things too. Uh, but then when I was about sixteen. You know, I had, I'm old enough, you guys are probably not as ancient as I am, but I'm old enough to remember Neil Armstrong stepping out onto the moon on our little black and white mm-hmm. TV. And so I was completely enthralled by, by space and, you know, building, you know, toothpick models of solar power satellites to do talks at, the, at our high school. So I was doing space talks from about 1979 you know, and writing to NASA and writing letters and getting stuff back. It was before the shuttle flew for the first time. So I was just completely hooked on both things. And then it it, it struck me recently that the, the intention was, what is the origin of life and how can we project life forward? 
How do we give life a future? And we give life a future if when we realize that we are the tools to allow life to propagate out, outside the earth. Because the earth is a, is a womb of life, but it's a tomb because of the gravity well. So, mm. you know, when the sun... And here's a here's a shaky thought for you. Um, um, our friend, uh, the discoverer of the ozone layer, that's um, gosh, what's his name again? Uh, anyway, his his new book uh, talks about this very very scary fact that by his calculation, it's only a hundred million years from now that the sun will be putting out about 1.5 watts per square meter of energy, which is about 3 to 4% more than it is now, because it's a, it's a main sequence star, mm. and it's just traveling up the main sequence. It has nothing to do with us, you know, this heating. And it turns out that the Terminator that, that gul gulped up Venus right in the beginning and turned it into a hot hell, that Terminator is getting really close to Earth. So it's, it's this imaginary line in space as, this, as our star gets warmer and warmer. And when it hits us, it, it's just a temperature differential that means we can have no CO2 in the atmosphere at all. Hmm. If we have any CO2, we go to runaway greenhouse and we become like our twin, like, uh, like Venus. And so this, this writer is saying, we may only have 100 million years before we go into the hothouse zone. And so if Gaia is anything, if Gaia exists as an entity or just as an overall force, it's got to make a move. It's got to make a move because otherwise there's no large complex animals and plants on land. That's that the oceans will, you know, be drying up. It may not be billions of years, it may be a lot shorter time frame. So if we are the mechanism, if we are the, you know, the, since the uh, reproductive organs for Gaia, we have to, you know, we, we can think about that and we, we perhaps are. And to give life a, a pathway into the future is a pretty good purpose for humanity. If, if humanity needs a purpose, which it probably does, because, you know, we don't seem to have an overall understanding of a purpose. And maybe that is. Yeah. Um, as far as the origins of life go and your your study of that, is is that what the Genesis Engine Project is all about? Oh, I just remembered. It's James Lovelock who oh, okay. uh, he's he's our man. Uh, he created this concept of Gaia theory uh, back in the seventies. So his his latest book talks about this early end to uh, complex life. So the the Genesis Engine came out of my PhD work. And it was the idea that you could build a new kind of computer that was a blend of a chemical computer, which could do millions or billions of chemical experiments in tiny little channels called microfluidic arrays. And the overall computer would, you know, load the system, do the chemical experiments, and suck out the results, do fast analysis figure out what was going on with the molecules and then flush the system out and then reload it. And that you could vastly accelerate any chemical reaction. You could build a, a search engine for, for chemistry, for finding reaction pathways. And I called it a Genesis engine because it, the ultimate version of this, of this chemo grid type of a machine would be to try to accelerate 
a, an origin of life in the lab that's from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was the general notion. But then in the last two or three years, working with Dave Deemer at UCSC, we've actually now come up with the physical model for the chemistry that you could then ultimately build this machine to vast, you know, accelerate it so that it's not beyond the lifetime of a of a, of a graduate student to, to get any results because that's the problem in chemistry. It just takes so long to see things happening. So um, back to the uh, Indo thing. The Indo way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, on that. and some of the, I, I can't help it. I can't move away from it yet because I wanted him to talk a little bit more about some of the, um, some of the uh, like spacecraft that you had oh. kind of brought back um, some of the ide- general ideas from that and kind of how that worked. Well, you know, it's um, it was it all came to down to one conversation about ten years ago. I was standing with my friend Brad Blair, who's a, a Colorado mining guy. I mean, his his house backs into a mine shaft, and he's built his workshop down into you know these, these are these kind of guys who they want their house to be attached to an open mine shaft. <laughs> That's just. What okay. they do, you know, they don't want a pool table. They want to. <laughs> they want a mine shaft. Yeah, they want to walk, be able to walk three miles back, back into the back of their house. <laughs> um, you know, and with all the hazards, you know, arsenic and everything. Anyway, so Brad, Brad's really obsessed and focused on mining the moon. And every time I've worked on lunar mining projects, I, I did developed an entire architecture for building a lunar base or Raytheon that was done under contract for NASA. That was done through basically a, a dream process. That That's where that popped out of. That was kind of a lucid dream. But anyway, uh, so I discovered by talking to Apollo astronauts who went to the moon, who drove on the moon, that the moon is a really tough place to do anything. It doesn't have water, any, any, any significant amount of water. The dust cuts through all your equipment. And it's it it gets bakingly hot, and then you know cryogenically cold every you know every, every lunar day and night every couple of weeks. It's a real harsh mistress, you know. And so I'm saying to Brad, we're just not going to mine the moon. It's just the wrong place to go. The research it's just too difficult. And then suddenly I looked up, and there was a flashing light came on on Hangar One, which is a gigantic airship hangar at Moffett Field where we were. I said, Brad, take a look at that flashing light. If that was a comet that got caught in the Earth-Moon system, it was a comet that just got caught by us and was was, uh, orbiting around the Earth and the Moon in a weird way and material was blowing off of it, what do you think about that? And he said, that would be the most valuable real estate in the solar system and every spacefaring nation would be trying to claim it. And I said, well, I said, why? And he said, because it would have 100,000 tons of water ice on it and methane and CO2 and carbon. You could build an enormous fueling station from it. You could, you could totally change the economics of space. And then I said to Brad, well, why don't we learn how to go and get those things? And he sort of cocked his, his cowboy hat at me. And, and so then I started working on it. And ran, NASA uh, basically ran the programs down in 2009, and we had no more funding. But I just said, heck with it. I'm going to continue to work on this. And they invited me to a workshop, you know, another brainstorming, in 2010. 
I think, or maybe it was 13, uh, where they were doing, they were trying to figure out how to land an object on an asteroid and, and figure out if biological material could grow there and blah, blah, blah. And I almost left the meeting. You know, I, I was just, because there had been no new thinking in about five years. Mm-hmm. And then one, I had this one insight and I stood up, you know, and faced our two-star general, uh, Pete Warden, and said, you know, what we need to do is encapsulate these objects. We need to, to capture them as individual grains on the space station with aerogel, and then we need to go out and we need to wrap a capture structure around them because then we can we can manage them. And every, every there were people sort of in the room, and somebody said, oh, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. So then I had Ryan, our genius graphic artist start mocking up these fabric structures that would extend around the asteroid and then finally in March of of 2014 I was at a conference and there was this tall skinny Dutch guy there with no name badge and I said and we started to talk to him and I he, he seemed to know something about you know meteorites and and asteroids and so I, sh- I whipped out my iPhone and said, here's this idea of encapsulating these, one of these things in a fabric structure. And he looked at me and said, that'll never work. I said, well, who are you? He said, I'm Peter Janiskins. I'm a meteor astronomer at the SETI Institute. You know, it turns out that if, if there's a flash in the sky, this guy's cell phone rings and he goes out and picks up pieces. Wow. And he tracks these things on the way in. So he really is an expert in, in, on asteroids. And so we went out to lunch. And That's we a, had a major synchronicity right there. It is. It, we, had a, we had a bowl of clam chowder. And by the end of the bowl of clam chowder, Peter turned to me and said, I figured out how to make it work, which was we introduce, uh, we, we take a gas out to the asteroid. We wrap our balloon structure around it. We don't touch it. We don't have a gantry touching it. We don't, because I had a gantry that would go out and, stabilize and touch and he said you can't do that they're consolidated rubble piles they'll just come apart and destroy your entire mission Mm -hmm. no anybody who shows cabling or drilling or things attached to the to asteroids is doesn't know anything about asteroids (laughs) and so he said what we do is we bring several tons of xenon gas we inject it into the balloon and what will happen is through dissipative friction alone, the asteroid will stop tumbling within a day. And if we did the computations, it's less than a day for a thousand ton object to stop just through gas friction. Wow. And now we can start hitting it with waves of gas from ductwork, the same ductwork, and rotate it like a space, a sailing ship into the stream. And then we can start pushing it with, say, about a one Newton worth of force and changing its orbit. And then we fire our, our uh, xenon engines out the back and we keep the whole structure coupled. And we can actually then deorbit these things. So we could bring something that has tons of ice from outside the orbit of Mars and we could take it into the inner solar system, this gradual driving force that's all solar powered uh, and like a sailing ship and we could bring it to Earth orbit or Mars orbit. And while we're doing it, pull off, sublimate out the, the water ice, 
condense it into tanks in this tanker block section and start cracking it into hydrogen and oxygen, which gives you rocket fuel. And, and we can, tons of water. And so we can give Elon Musk his, his gas stations that he'll need for a transportation system and in their, in their thousands. Yeah, when I first heard about this, I, I that's what I thought. I was like, he's he's talking about a system of of gas stations around the solar system. But then when when I thought about it more, I was like, no, because you were also talking about having like three D printers that can build larger structures. So it's like, uh, it's more than a gas station. And it turns out now here's the funny thing for you: the third designer of Shepard is a fellow named Julian Knott. Uh-huh. who lives in Santa Barbara. He's a British guy, and he's the world's leading designer of balloons. And so for a month, two years ago, he and I had daily brainstormings to figure out how to do this balloon thing. And I would I would call him up with a sketch and say, how about this? And he, and he would say, I'll never work. And you, need, you have, can't have rigid structures. It's not a dirigible. You have to have soft air beams. And, and then we worked on the ceiling mechanism which is really the hard part and then at the end of the month we submitted it all to nasa you know we didn't get selected for for that program we knew we wouldn't so i gave it away in the tedx talk two months or a year later but julian his grandfather was the accountant for isambard kingdom brunel the the greatest engineer of the victorian era who created trains and train stations, the first steamships, the first magnificent bridges. Um, This guy was the guy that that he took the the invention of the steam engine invented by Newcomen just to pump out mines, and he turned it into a transportation revolution in the the 19th century. And we believe that, you know, having Julian on board, we sort of have that lineage that we've found a single invention – that can create a, a revolution in in transportation and s- sort of habitation of space. Because not only can we extract stuff out of these objects like water ice to to fuel and water, but we can, as as you pointed out, um, we we can actually use carbonyl gas as one of the introduced atmospheres to pull nickel ions out of a nickel iron asteroid and pull it along an electric field. depositing it onto something called a mandrel, which is uh, an old technique. This is from the 19th century, invented by by, uh, Pierre Mond. And we can electroplate or electroform 3D objects, like enormous trusses and cylindrical sections of pure nickel, just extracted through gas. And then the final version of of Shepard is biospheres. So you've got your Dorian Sagan you know, biosphere two type idea that you take an a, a, a icy planetesimal and you melt it down to a liquid globule. You don't take all the gases out and you make a basically one of like one of those fish bowls or one of those glass sealed glass biospheres you can buy, you know, that as long as it has, has light shining in it, you've got a couple of shrimp in there and you've got, you know, different life forms and it's self-sustaining and you do the same thing for this globule in space, and you're creating a small Earth. And so you can you can grow all of the consumables people will need. So this, the three 
so Shepard, by introducing an enclosure and an atmosphere, you're creating small worlds for different functions. And and you can literally then have the breakout to space being being reasonable and reasonably possible in this century. How big of a structure could you build with a small asteroid? You could, I mean, basically, you know, what we build now, our space stations are whatever fits in the payload shroud of a heavy lift vehicle or the shuttle cargo bay, but we don't mm. fly the shuttle anymore. So when when I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey when I was a kid, my little nerd brain was doing all these calculations and it said that Pan Am shuttle that took Haywood Floyd up to the rotating station did not carry all those trusses. It's too small. The payload bay is not big enough. So they must have lifted all that stuff. And I calculated in my little brain that it was about 10,000 launches to build that rotating station. And then I figured this is just not practical at all, you know, and because the the parts are huge, you know, they're, they're huge curving beams and all this. And Stanley Kubrick, you know, could take license and assume that we could do this sort of stuff easily. And so, um, Really, this is totally scale independent. I mean, you you get a a lot of the nickel on Earth uh, that's mined on the Earth, say in Sudbury, Ontario, that comes from big asteroid impacts. So it's just buried asteroidal nickel. So if you you could come to a a huge nickel iron object and build a very very large part. I mean, you could build something hun- hundreds of or a thousand feet across. It's really scale scale independent. You could just electroform the parts you need. So, you, you know, th- th- there's been science fiction ideas of tunneling into asteroids and making them into habitat. So that's probably not practical. But this way of of electroforming um, through gas metal mining is possibly practical. Yeah, it makes so much more sense to to build it out out there where the, the resources are. Because um, that's what these objects are, right? They're small little bits of resources floating around. Yeah, and um, I had the privilege of, in April of uh, doing back-to-back talks at another space conference with Andy Weir, who wrote the book The Martian that was, that was made into the movie. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because I pointed out in my talk, you know, Andy did his talk, uh, and then I pointed out in my talk that uh, what was depicted in the Martian is actually a terrible way to go to Mars. You know, you, you send a huge craft, uh, you land a huge amount of stuff in one place, and then the base has a failure or some, some problem, and you have to do an emergency evacuation, and you've only just been in one area and subjected all your equipment to all the, the challenges of being on Mars. Whereas this Shepard architecture is the smart way to do it, which is land, put your your fuel load in orbit ahead of the human crew, your return fuel and your water supplies and everything. And when they, when they get there, they dock with the tanker block section and they take the old one off and they just basically attach it to a, another shepherd fabric structure and it goes out and just gets refilled. Um, But then they have, they have fuel and water and everything to go to all over you know, places all over Mars. It's called global access. So they take a small lander and a rover to 20 locations because they have enough fuel to do it, and they've always got assurance of, of fuel to return. 
So the spacecraft can be smaller and they live in space where it's clean. They live in space where it's clean and, and they can control their environment. And then the science is better, the safety is better, and the cost is much lower. So this is what, what, I, what the three of us are hoping to do when we get in front of Elon at some point. Supposedly, Elon watched the TEDx talk <laughs> uh, and, and just make the argument that you know, his team is estimating 19 launches of his Falcon Heavy booster just to lift water and fuel for a Mars trip. 19 launches, that's a lot of cost. Mm -hmm. We could potentially eliminate all but a couple of those launches. And just with an investment in the next 15 to 20 years of trying this thing out in low Earth orbit with golf balls or, you know, bags of trash from the space station to go and fetch them, you know, try miniature versions of Shepard. Do you have uh, specific asteroids that you're aware of that you would target, or is it something that there's so many out there that it, you could find one when you needed one? There's so many. Um, you know, one just whizzed by the Earth. It was actually a comet nucleus that was quite large. I think it was half a mile wide. or was a 500, 500 feet across that, was, that surprised everyone. That was oh, last wow. month. Um, there's known ones. There's ones in what are called the Trojan points, uh, which are orbital positions in, in our orbit, but up front and back of us. They're kind of like the bow and stern position. So you could go out there and there's there's things that are there. There's sort of rock piles that are there. So it'll be fascinating to go and, and fetch some of these things. Here's a, an interesting, I, I don't know if it's interesting, but there's something I've been wondering about. And I think that you might be the only person who could answer it really. <laughs> Humans have been interested in, in meteorites and things that have fallen from space for a long time. I read a, an article recently that, that King Tut's knife that he had with him when he was buried was made of a meteorite, you know, and there's, and there's meteorite, there's a meteorite or some sort of rock from space at Mecca. And these are sort of objects that have been um, worshipped over time. Why are humans uh, fascinated with this material? And why would people so long ago have known that they were that this was special material? Well, you know, of course, in the desert environment, it's an ideal place to go and pick up meteorites because they, they fall and they're quite obvious. They don't get weathered as much. They don't get, you know, they don't drop into 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 lakes and things. So, you know, if you go across the... Namib Desert, you'll find meteorites everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and in fact, on Mars, the the rovers have found meteorites sitting on the surface of Mars. Uh, So so you find them on the ice caps in Greenland, Greenland, for example. There's there's so much stuff raining down all the time. So I'm sure that, especially back in in those days, uh, if you had a pure nickel-iron metallic meteorite that would land, it's it saves you a lot of, of, of uh, effort because you're not smelting ore. You have something that's almost pure metal. So you can literally go to your forge and start, start using it. And perhaps, and, and I don't think that they understood that, that they were falling from the sky because in the 19th century, maybe even earlier, I think in the 15th century, there was a monk that was, who became a scientist that was arguing that rocks fell from the sky. And at one point the king ordered his entire collection to be discarded and whatnot because it was a preposterous idea. That was in Europe, somewhere, I think, France. 
So it was not really understood where these things came from, but it was a real handy source of, of almost refined metal. So it was probably the only source, you know, at that time. Yeah, I mean, you could you could find native copper. I mean, the first the first sort of metallic instruments in in the Near East are from native copper, uh, because they didn't understand how to smelt, you know, how to take ore, and you know, um, they didn't have a, a heat source to to break it down into its components. So you had to rely on those kind of sources. So it's not surprising that that. The, the, these, I mean, I'm sure that a big proportion of Damascus steel was made from meteoritic iron. I guess changing subjects just a little bit from from meteoritic from iron <laughs> to uh, I just wanted to hear a little bit of your um, history uh, with uh, the Burning Man Festival. And I heard you tell the story on Rogan about how you were with the uh, one of the uh, camps that were partially, if not mostly, like U.S. government based. And um, a little bit about that. I just found that stuff really cool. Yeah, that was a, a wonderful camp. We were in the center camp area, and we had access to good internet because the camp had the dish for years that connected Burning Man to the outside world. It was a tachyon. that was a satellite dish. And then eventually we got on an OC3 connection through the air to Gerlach, so we had really good bandwidth. And one of our guys was a, a Title X type innovator guy that worked directly for the Pentagon. And during the Katrina, uh, when Katrina, Hurricane Katrina was coming in, you know, nobody knew about it at Burning Man because cell phone service didn't work. And for the most part, people didn't have Wi-Fi. But our friend uh, basically tapped into satellites and was able to track it uh, because he worked in emergency relief efforts. He, He had just come from Bande Aceh, you know, the, the Asian tsunami, and he'd been in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And when he got to Burning Man, he was really stressed. But he had, <laughs> he had helped with search and rescue by basically dropping walkie-talkies on parachutes to people in, in the affected areas of the Asian tsunami. And he's just an incredible innovator. He's invented all this stuff called extreme comms. And so we tracked... Uh, we tracked uh, the hurricane coming in using those assets. And it was, it was quite fascinating to, to do it right from Burning Man. And at one point, and I wasn't there at the time, but uh, Joan Baez came by the camp because she'd heard that something was going on with New Orleans and they showed her the stuff and she said, we had to do something. And so she held a concert out at the temple uh, singing from David Best's bus, and Galen actually was also on that, standing on the bus, bus singing, and we we did a prayer for New Orleans and raised about twenty thousand dollars actually in empty water jugs. People just putting money in there, wow. and, and that money was then used, just given to people who are from those counties and parishes that could not go home. I mean, they their banks weren't working and they couldn't go home and. They needed cash, so instead of giving it to the United Way, we just gave it to them. Mm-hmm. And and that whole effort ended up creating something called Burners Without Borders, um, or the Temple to Temple Initiative, and Burning Man went down and rebuilt churches in the Delta, and that became Burners Without Borders, and it became a wonderful part of 
the Burning Man organization that does good work out in the world. So how long have you been involved with Burning Man? We went for the first time in 99 and went for six years, I think, and then took took a break. And then I, I went back for three years um, just to help relaunch the Palenque Norte mm-hmm. speaker series, which Lorenzo had started in 2003. Uh, was was the first the first intellecti on the playa the first speaker series and that was that was based upon uh, the original Palenque eth- ethnobotany seminars that were held in Mexico and so he called it Palenque Norte and and it brought some of the same speakers um, that had been at the original Palenque meetings and started that up again and that provided enormous. Uh, content for the Psychedelic Salon podcast over the years. And you were involved with that somehow? It, was so, it your involvement with Lorenzo? or? Yeah, just friends with Lorenzo. We, we met, uh, Gail and I met Lorenzo and Mary C. at uh, the Alchemical Arts Conference in Kona, Hawaii in 1999. It was the, the goodbye meeting for Terrence. Mm. Because Terrence had been diagnosed in in May with a brain tumor, and he his head was shaved, and he was just Terrence. I mean, he was you know smart as a as a cracker. I mean, just just as as normal. But he'd been through the ringer, and for many of us, we felt that would be our goodbye, and it was. Um, but uh, that it was a great meeting, and that's I remember meeting Lorenzo coming out of uh, I was going back in or coming out of the conference hotel and we just stood there and talked and that he was writing a book called spirit of the internet and galen and i ended up being in that and then he he would come up here and one meeting i think it was in 2001 we had this idea that there would be one day a format on the internet where there would be voice conversations that people could share and that they could add to and listen to or record live online. And I had bought a technology called Talkspace from a company that was going bankrupt because it was the dot-com crash. Mm. And we actually used that. We used that with, uh, gosh, what's the, 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 the great party guy in London, uh, Fraser Clark. Uh, they used Talkspace to do live streaming and recording of, of big events in London in 2001, 2002. This mm-hmm. was before the word podcast was, was coined. Yeah. And we were going to use Talkspace to do all that. And then Skype came out. And we thought, okay, they've nailed it. You know, they've nailed voice on the internet and they'll soon have a record button. So I decided I'm not, I'm not an entrepreneur enough to, to make Talkspace into something. And then we felt that eventually the tools would allow huge numbers of, of conversational streams and that people would listen to those streams. And in 2004, actually it was probably 2005, uh, Lorenzo finally started the, his podcast. So it, it, it was an interesting thing. We were way ahead of the curve and Lorenzo then decided, Hey, you know, I've been in a public speaker. I've been a motivational speaker. I've run a cable access channel and he has a great sort of Navy commanding voice. Mm-hmm. It is a perfect voice. I'm retired. What am I going to do with my life? I'll, I'll do this thing. I'll bring, bring the old voices into this. And, I'll do, and, and he, he's a, you know, a, a habit, a, a guy of great habits, so that he literally once a week 
or once every two weeks for the last 11 years. He's produced these incredibly good podcasts and we've digitized, we digitized the trialogues, cassettes, you know, and then as one, we were in the middle of digitizing some of Terrence's material when we got the call that the fire had destroyed his archive down in, in Monterey. And so that sort of accelerated our process to re reconstruct Terrence from cassettes and put him back out. And then at the same time, I started working on the Timothy Leary archive with Dennis Berry, who's the trustee, and they had reel-to-reel -reel audio. And that got digitized. And so all of the all of Tim Leary's talks became available. So I I one day mailed a, what I called the pod, which was this hard drive down to Lorenzo, and it had all of Timothy Leary's corpus of, of, of talks, and he started going through those. So, you know, many, many other people contributed. They sent cassettes, they digitized things, and so we got the old voices, and then we got new voices constantly. And, you know, he's just gone past his 500th uh, podcast. Yeah, and that's amazing stuff because that's going to be around for who knows how long, for yeah. as long as the internet as it stands is around. So there was something about Terrence's voice too that was yeah. so so engaging. Um, and you you shared with us something that that we want to play at the end of our at the end of our interview here, which is your um, spoken word piece that you did at Lightning in a Bottle. Um, would you like to talk about that a little bit? I think you said you were going on tour with that or something. Yeah, that. That was a long-time dream that, that came true last Saturday night. Uh, Android Jones and I had been planning for some time to do a collaboration. He, he used to live just down the road here. He, he now lives in Colorado. But if, if those of you who don't know who Android Jones or Andrew Jones is, he's this amazing artist. Uh, and one of the things he does, he's, he works in the digital medium with, with brushes but he has done projection art on the sit side of the Sydney Opera House, you know, from boats and many, many other places where he's live painting Phaedra, his creative partner, while she moves. He, he does fantastic live painting. So we've, we wanted to do this together where I would do a talk about cosmology or science or the Eleusinian mysteries or some kind of threaded talk, and then he would do the art for custom art and it happened it it happened on saturday night at lightning in a bottle at the temple stage and we have a wonderful we had a wonderful dj val santana and we pulled it off That's so awesome. congratulations was, yeah and we had a packed house and really good response and so what you're going to hear on the podcast is is a uh it's the rehearsal uh, take with the tracks on it and it's slightly different uh, I, I modified the uh, modified it for the live show uh, and of course things sound different in the live show and there were camera crews there and lightning in the bottle recorded the whole thing so hopefully that will uh, you know see the light of day pretty soon That's but awesome. the, the response was so good that uh, we're just going to try to do this again and, and, and Andrew has a whole lot of ideas for integrating me into the graphics where when I move my body, things are going to come out of, you no know, spacecraft will come out of my fingertips. Oh, <laughs> so, and all of this was done in homage to Terrence because Terrence, you know, some of your older 
or even younger listeners will remember that if a few times in the 90s, Terrence did this kind of thing. So in 92, 93, he did a, a show called Alien Dreamtime. And the band was The Shaman. And I, I forget who did the graphics for that. And there was Stephen Kent on Didgeridoo. And it was tremendous. And our, our friend uh, Ken Adams, actually, I think Ken Adams did the graphics. Ken Adams, who did the Terrence McKenna Experience film that came out a few years ago. And they were on stage in San Francisco, and Terrence did this wonderful slow delivery to allow the musicians to, to track what he was doing and the, the graphics, and it really was powerful. And then we were present when he did it with Lost at Last in 98, you know, and he was actually overtoning, you know, he, he went from just a speaker to being a performer <laughs> and then he was gone, you know, within a year he was gone. And so back last year in Melbourne in January of, of, of 2015, I met with a band in Melbourne. I was on tour in Australia and I said, let's listen to, Dream, Alien Dream Time, and Terrence and Lost and Last, and let's try to nail this thing. And went into their studio, and, and we nailed it. And actually, Lorenzo put that out uh, a few podcasts ago. It's called Something Completely Different. So that was the first stage of, of revitalizing the format. And so the next stage has been just achieved at LIB. Mm, so awesome. with the visual. So it's a a format that we can now evolve to main stages and big venues. Um, so I'm actively looking for creative people or venues that might be interested in this. So that that's that's what you're going to hear. When you're not going to see the uh, graphics that An Andrew did, but that that's where we're heading. Yeah, it's beautiful to listen to, and I feel like it's sort of, uh, in listening to it, it sort of opens up a space in your mind that allows you to go to this sort of Indo way, this visualization space. It has to do with the music, it has to do with the words that you're saying, um, but overall, it just kind of puts you in that space. So I, it's it's kind of nice to he hear it without the graphics. Yeah. Um, so your mind can do its own thing. Yeah. yeah. Could you tell um, tell me a little bit about the Eleusinian mysteries? Well, you know, it's I've been fascinated by this for some time. Lorenzo, uh, we did a program at Esalen in 2012 that was on Terrence's life. Um, and the last day, uh, Lorenzo pointed out that we need new myths in our culture. New myths, new powerful myths. And he offered that the story of Eleusis, which by classicists and by philosophers is considered the greatest, potentially the greatest thing that's ever happened in history, or the greatest mystery uh, in the historical record, uh, is, is something to revisit. So for the last two or three years, I've been obsessed. I've been reading about this. Uh, uh, Nick Herbert gifted me a piece of the temple at Eleusis that was given to him, so I have a, a piece of this this temple. Please tell and me it's a, like a meteorite or something. It's a <laughs> shell. It's actually a seashell that's been fossilized, cool. and it was taken from the lowest foundations of of, a, of the building that was called the Telesterion. What a great name, huh? Okay. The Telesterion. And what Eleusis was, and you can go there, you can take a bus ride from you know, from Athens and go to the museum that's there. 
What it was was a initiation ceremony that lasted for 1,700 years that was run every year uh, for up to about 1,000 people at a time. Uh, and you had a right. If you spoke, you have to speak some of the Greek language. That was the only uh, requirement. But you, 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 any person in, in the Mediterranean had a right to go and be initiated in, at Eleusis. And what, what they did was they first went through the lesser mysteries where they got to Athens. And, you know, in those days, traveling was really hazardous. You know, so these people came by sea, by land. They could get to Athens. They were initiates. Um, they went through the lesser mysteries, and that's more understood. This is sort of like there were there were rites of passage that were done, and so for about four or five months they prepared to go and walk up to the Eleusinian plain. And by the time they were walking up to the plain, they were all dressed in simple garb. So you could have had future Emperor Augustus Caesar walking next to a fisherman. Or, you know, certainly Plato and all these important thinkers all were initiated. And the, the concept was that somehow this initiation made human beings. And what they were doing was they were taking initiation ceremonies that happened in the Upper Paleolithic that were tribal, where mostly young males were initiated. And you can still see this in some cultures on the earth today. And they had made it a thing called a mystery school which initiated civilization out of the Upper Paleolithic. And so these people would arrive at the temple complex. They would uh, go through um, many days, actually six, six or seven days of further conditioning. And then on the ninth day, they sat in the telesterion and sound was coming out, incredible a sound light show was put on women would come down with these enormous pots on their heads and they would dance and it was all attuned to the mystery of of persephone the myth of persephone coming back for, to uh, bring spring and bring life back to uh, on the earth you know this is the the great you know parable of greek civilization and so the women would then hand out these cups which contained a drink called the kaikion and everyone would take it, and they would wait for the light to come. And Plato describes this as being beyond what happened, was being beyond any words of any language. Um, and it's believed by scholars, uh, serious scholars, you know, it's controversial within cla the, the classics field that this was a psychedelic potion of some kind um, that had very, very powerful effects. Uh, in this group, and when they left, when they left Eleusis, they were changed. They were open to something greater than their own tribe or their own language or their own local situation. And I believe that this was the the means by which civilization rose, where you had aqueducts and the theater and the academy and the polity, and um, we we the enormous uh, benefits came from this, and then. In the, in the fourth century, after basically West, the Western Roman world was crumbling, um, Christians coming out of the Council of Nicaea, the fourth Council of Nicaea in Constantinople, were on their way to Eleusis, and they met the Germanic uh, raider king Alaric, 
and they paid him to bring his men with them and smash the temple at Eleusis. This is well documented. And these guys are well described in the historic record and as being fairly grim individuals. And the temple was destroyed because it was competition to their new system, which was a corporate-backed, book-based, male hierarchical, tax-paying, rules-following um, you know, religion that denied you the ability to have direct contact with God because there were bishops and people in between you and God, and that you may enter the gates of heaven upon your death if you follow their rules. You know, such a deal. So, so that sounds like nothing's really changed. Sounds like modern society, actually. <laughs> well, that's where it's modern. <laughs> so the patterning of this is amazing. This is 1,600 years ago, or 1,500 years ago. But what, what that, what of course the churches became. So the mystery schools were replaced by churches, which then were replaced by corporations and the state. You know, which which mm-hmm. exacts the same requirements for people. So. In some sense, what's happened since the 60s, you know, here is a return of direct contact, you know, whether it be psychedelics or Vipassana or uh, extreme sports, everyone is seeking initiation into this kind of light directly and personally with no, no intermediary. And, and the state is certainly threatened by that. Uh, or certainly was in the 60s here uh, because of the punitive laws that came in and a lot of people, the the casualties that were created. But, um, you know, a powerful kaikion arose again. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's a combination of things that are allowing people to tap into this. You know, we've been far too long in the church pews or in the factory floor or in this, this, the rows of desks in school or the cubicles at work. I mean, that's not really a good place, healthy place for human beings to be, you know, all their lives. I, it seems like I heard Alex Gray use that word recently, Kai Keon. Oh, yeah. Do you know who, who Alex Gray is? Oh, definitely. Galen and I have, have known Alex and Allison for years. I figured you had. <laughs> so I guess... Um, why don't we go ahead and let you uh, tell the listeners how they can kind of find you. And then I'm excited for them to hear uh, the piece of music that you have that's related to these Eleusinian mysteries. Yeah. And for a little bit of introduction for that, it's a, it's kind of a mishmash amalgam of a lot of my thinking around, you know, cosmogenesis all the way through the origin of life through the origin of consciousness, uh, through the coming of civilization, you know, and what that meant. So it's, it's a little bit, it's a, it's a uh, little bit of what kind of the things that Terence would talk about, these great sweeping things. Uh, but it's, it's lodged in my, uh, my work in science and engineering. Uh, so it's, it's, that it's, it's, produced and spoken with love and none of it is to be taken as, as fact, uh, but as, as poetry and art. Um, and that said, if you want more of stuff like that, uh, you can find it at the levity zone podcast, uh, which is levity org. 
or certainly I'm, I'm and scattered around from, as you mentioned, Joe Rogan to Psychedelic Salon to Third Eye Drops and many, many other podcasts, The Space Show, if you want to hear nerdy space things, um, and the Digibarn Computer Museum. Uh, but if you want to find me online, just look for me on Facebook or at damer.com, D-A-M-E-R.com. I feel like we could uh, sit here and talk to you for hours about just keep going about much anything. I th- pretty much throw anything at you and you could, you'd be able to talk about it. So I'm hoping we can have you back on at some point and, and talk more. If I can't talk about something, I can make something up. <laughs> Our favorite kind of person. <laughs> Oh, you know, it'll be absolutely wonderful, and uh, I still can't figure out which one of you is uh, which one, but... <laughs> well, that's the way we like to keep it, so that's the part of the mystery. <laughs> part of the, yeah, the We call it the Gracian Mysteries. <laughs> the Gracian Mysteries, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, um, Bruce, and we, uh, we will definitely be calling you back. Righty-ho, and have a good listen. Thank Take you. Care. And now we present to you a piece called Fire in the Sky, performed by Dr. Bruce Damer. The music is by DJ Dissolve. The piece was performed live on May 28, 2016 on Temple Stage at the Lightning in a Bottle Festival near Bradley, California, with the artist Android Jones projecting live art. Enjoy. There is nothing, nothing at all, nothing but random quantum fluctuations. It's lonely, but it's perfect, perfect, perfect for the Ur particle to come into existence. The Ur particle says, I will exist. The universe says back to it, no, you won't. I will shuck you off. I had the perfect rest state, and you interrupted it. I will become an existing being. I will persist. I will be here in the next moment. And then the clock of time begins. The tick-tock of time. To advance its cause, the Earth particle quickly creates its double. And the double of its double. Then they fluoresce, they fluoresce along the golden spiral of the Fibonacci sequence. But there's a little wiggle, there's a little introduction of something. Something special wiggles. Something of intelligence, of mind. Something of a hand wiggles into the picture. So the perfect Fibonacci spirals the rails upon which the particles are moving out gets shifted, shifted by a random quantity. A random quantity. Where does random come from? The random is the hand of God. And this random piles up and piles up. It throws the particles into chaos. The edge of the sunflower blurs. 
things start to collide, things start to merge, and BAM! The cosmos lights up. The Big Bang. And there's a fire in the sky. Rushing outward, the cosmos now breathes out chaos. As it had inhaled order, it now breathes out chaos and rushes out, rushes out until it meets the obstruction, until it meets the boundary. The rubber banda of gravitas pulls it back into union, says you can't go any further. I will keep you in union. I am gravity, the great forger. I now go to work with my hammer and tongs. I bring you together, you little or particles everywhere. Create some order from that chaos. Fall in, fall into my gravity well. I will take you. So they fall in, they spiral in. They get denser and denser. They get hot. They've never experienced hot, except at their births. It's a new birth, a rebirth of the cosmos, as stars ignite. And suddenly, there are many fires in the sky. A billion years pass, and a billion more, and more particles are made, and more fires are lit in the sky. Then around one, one very special one, there are circling organic ices. These are the ices made in cosmochemistry the beautiful structures and the beautiful scriptures of something to come. The star ignites, the star brilliates the disk, the warmth melts the ice to droplets, and these fall in to impregnate hopeful worlds. On rocky worlds, eager oceans mop up these droplets. Volcanoes light the night and lift their fire above the black oceans. The sky goes boom with a flash of meteorites. More fires in the sky, feeding our restless newborn world. The clouds finally part. The atmosphere clears pink. And the young sun warms our baby planet's tender new skin, just a few miles thick. The first freshwater rain falls, bathes the baby, and bubbling up through the parched Archean landscape, feeds warming pots, stirring and ingratiating the soup of life.
are liquid crystals, soft and liquid. We formed from lipid. We squirmed our way into being. We took up the polymers and we produced the functions. We are soft, soft crystal. We grew, we accumulated. We accumulated at the bottom of the pool as it was drying down. We fed, we fed on the concentrated monomers. We built new functions. We dried out. We exhumated all our trash. We spread. We spread by being lifted. We rafted down the river. We found a new pool. It was just about right. The Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone. We lifted. Wind captured us, peeled us off as a film. We were dry then. We were the spore. We traveled far across the island. We landed under the slab. We learned how to lick the sunlight. Then we met our brethren in the pool, our sistren in the stream. We shared genes, we squiggled together, we shared dreams. We were the progenote, the roots of the tree of life. For millions of years we recombined the hydrogel protocell. We mashed together, we carried the genetic underground. We created and fed in the genetic cloud. Up out of the genetic cloud rose functions. We shared the functions. Earth was a pleasant place. Asteroid impacts every month. Acid rain. But plenty of food from the sky. Interplanetary dust particles kept feeding us. But then one day we ignited. One of our sistren figured it all out. She made PAHs, those funny ringed carbon compounds. We ate the PAHs, but then we found a better use for them. They floated up to the top of our gel and our communal unit was screened from the sun screened from the sun, but as the photons hit it, the absorption bit it, and we got energized. Energy for all, free for all. We fed from the fire in the sky, and that was the beginning of photosynthesis. Now we could make our own food. We didn't have to wait for the particles. We didn't have to wait for the roiling, boiling soup to produce it for us. We could make our own. We were phototrophs, and we were on our way. We were on our run. We had a planet to transform, so we needed that energy. 
but we had the vitality, the vitality to transform a world. The garden lay in our future, and someone, someone in a hut, in front of a microphone, in front of a microphone, talking about us, figuring us out, how we came to be, loving us for what we did. Three billion years of planetary cleaning. First the coffee-colored oceans precipitate all that iron, fill that buffer with oxygen, and then bloom it into the atmosphere. We now have a blue sky, a blue sky and clean rain and oxygen made by the microbial mat, made by the mighty stromatolite, Ringing all the continents, all the green slime that made our world and allowed us to make our bodies. So that's the story, the story of us gel progenotes, the story of the soft crystal beings. And as you think about that, inside your brain case, your brain case, which is made of appetite. The bone of your body is made of mineral, but inside lies a most wondrous liquid crystal, the most densely ramified matter in the cosmos, the brain. Your neurons, your neuronal bundle is a gigantic, cross-magrified, glorious quantum machine it's a quantum liquid crystal machine that can see into the cosmos. It can echo with the cosmos, and it can look back upon its own beginning. So think about that. And as you're thinking about that, you're making the beginning, and you're making where we go next. You're creating the future. The waves go out. Intention is set and stepping stones are placed in front of you.
slime climbs. Slime climbs and invents lignin, which allows it to climb to the fire in the sky. Gene scream, Gene scream, and the dinosaurs roar into existence. The animals are here, the animals. The great forests cover the continents, the green. And one day the whip-tailed creature, the prosimian, alights on the limb of the great rainforest giant because what it sees is a glistening globule at dawn, pulling itself from the ball, the secure colony. It walks out onto that limb, seeking the sap of the glistening globule, and as its lips purse and pull in the nutriment, it looks around, one eye toward the community ball, the community ball, if it sees her taking the precious glucose, will bust her. She'll be busted if they see her. One eye scans the cosmos. One eye sees the stars. One eye wonders about what are these fires in the sky. Her mind is opening. Her mind is questioning. And then the rays from our fire in the sky touch her. And for a moment, the eye comes down. The eye looks into her future and sees a pattern across the limb. A pattern of squares. Bright colored squares on a dark patina. What are these things, she questions. They're flowing, but then they're still. Her mind is asking, what is this mosaic of color that I see? And realization begins to spark. The fire of knowing, the fire in the mind. Because as she's watching the trippy scale pattern, the head of the serpent is wrapping itself around the limb and moving to a striking position underneath her. And if she does not realize and leap at the right moment, he will snap her ass down. So slowly and inexorably through a trillion quests for the elixir, quests for the mind to open, for a trillion trips to the medicina, there's an encounter with the serpent, and the encounter with the serpent ends in being snapped up or snapping to. And for each snapping to, she goes back and creates another, creates her double, who's a little smarter, but also who can see in 3D, who understands color and acuity, the progeny and their offspring climb. They climb that hill to consciousness. Their minds open and ignite the fire within. Roll the clock 60 million years. Artipithecus walks the forest floor, but she can still climb. 
So she climbs the tree to grasp a fig, peers out upon the brilliance of the advancing dry Serengeti. She squints and peers through the heat haze, and there in the mirage a face is presented of a weird, weird beast never seen. But it's a weird, weird beast that is her. It is her, it is the other hominids coming. They're coming for her. What does this all mean? What is this threat as the fall of Eden exposes them to this new world? She tilts her head. She's afraid, but she's also curious. What is this face she sees in the haze? The face of her future. Ashen feet, ashen feet press their forms into the land, and the family walks around the volcano, walks northward out of East Africa, walks across into the face of the glaciers, walks down south, finds itself in the Alps, Villages are built, furs are worn, feet are shod, and a new era is born, and flint chips on flint, and sparks fly, and now the fire in the sky becomes the fire on the land, and hands are warmed in the Paleolithic village, the hunt is held, the story told, and men can grow old. Some of these men, and some women too, the shaman, wander the land. From village to village, they seek truth. They seek truth and they tell it. And in their pokes, in their pouches, the medicinal herb, the mushroom, forms. They bring the beginning of the healing. On the back end of the healing comes the revealing. The shaman dances, the tribe prances. The beat, the drum's beat is set. The hearts beat together. Community opens. Walking down from the Alps, the Iceman cometh. 
he arrives in the peninsula. The farms are set. The fishermen set forth. They set the stones. They build the beautiful temples. The Greeks have built their classical world. A scratch is made in the ground. Pythagoras is tracing the round, calculating the diameter of the earth at the smallest level. The atom is considered. Philosophy has arrived together with nature, science, laughter in the academy. But down the road, Petalusis, the women are carrying the initiation forward from the upper Paleolithic. In the Telesterion temple, they initiate a thousand people in the great mysteries. They brew a brew, a brew which is taken on the ninth day, and the light of Persephone, returning from Hades, fills the minds of the monkeys, and they become human beings. Human beings that will build a world, the classical world, science and the theater, the polity and the aqueduct. This is a beautiful world, this world of antiquity, until one day the black-robed Pauline Christians, fresh off their fourth Nicene council, on the road to Eleusis, they meet Alaric, the German heavy mover from the north, and hire the demolition crew they arrive at Eleusis and they destroy the temple down to the foundations. They lick the bones of the old world of initiation into the light and replace it with the darkness of guilt and dread. The wings spread and instead of your right to contact the light in your lifetime, you must now bow down you must now pay taxes. And only after following their rules written in their damned book, at the end of your days, you may enter the gates of heaven. Such a crime perpetrated on the human mind and not the saving of the souls, but their stealing. And the bones of civilization come crashing down the aqueducts still carry the waters, but the mystery schools are replaced by churches, and then churches by corporations. And this is where we find ourselves today, still following the damned book, still paying the penance until death, still waiting for the doors of paradise to open. But then in the 60s, in our lifetime, the light returns, the light comes up, not from Hades, but from a place called the Haight-Ashbury, a Dionysian return, and the great mystery is back on the earth, and there are those among us who remember this, and there are those among us who carry this forward even to this day. There are the Hierophants, with their fonts of the precious elixirs. And this tradition is making its comeback. After 1400 years in the church pews, you all find yourself here 
at lightning in a bottle, craving your own initiation, seeking your own light. And so it is. So when you step out of the temple tent and you go out into the night and your mind is alive and you head for the stages, you're going through the stages of your own enlightenment of your own awakening, of your own opening. When you hit the dance floor and you move your body with the rhythms of the community, when you look up at the DJs, today's shamans, today's hierophants of the temple, when you look at their light, their laser light coming through the vibration and you reach up, up, you can reach up and find your own fire in the sky, your ascension, the monkey's ascension. It can happen right here, right now, tonight. So go and do it, go and do it. It is, after all, your birthright. Thank you for listening to the Evil Twin Podcast. To get the full Evil Twin experience, go to eviltwinpodcast.com and follow the guys on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Evil Twin Podcast. If you really want to show your support, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcasts on iTunes. And remember, first of all, are you next? Falls through feminine. First, no, we lost it.